The overarching narrative is the blame game. Who's to blame for the state of the Alberta economy uh, and not as much attention on who can fix it. And she has been dealt, again, another bad set of cards because the economy has just gone through the roof in Alberta. This is all beyond her control. All the women cycle out and then you just have the same cast of characters up there again. Hey there, this is Kate Graham, and you're tuned in to No Second Chances, a Canada 2020 project about women in Canada's most senior political roles. Over the past few weeks, we've been focused on the 12 women who've served as a Canadian First Minister, a Prime Minister or Premier. We started with their childhoods, and then their early decision to run for politics, and then what life was like as a rookie politician. You might have tuned in today, eager to hear the next chapter, about running for leadership. Trust me, it'll be a good one. But we've decided to take a brief pause from this plot, because there's something coming up that's kind of a big deal. On April 16th, 2019, Albertans are going to the polls. And this election is particularly relevant to our project. Premier Rachel Notley is currently the only female First Minister in Canada. She's the last woman standing, and she's quite literally seeking a second chance. If she wins, she'll break a long-standing pattern in Canadian politics, where female First Ministers lose when they run for re-election. She'll be the first to win and lead through a second mandate. If she loses, she'll be yet another example of what has become a bit of a Canadian pattern when it comes to women in political leadership, and will enter a period of time where there are no women leading our provinces, territories, or country. And so in today's episode, we're going to focus on Alberta. Now, let me be clear. This is a multi-partisan project. We are profiling women from across the political spectrum, so we're less interested in the partisan dimensions of the race and more interested in whether gender is playing a role in the campaign. So today you'll hear from academics, political strategists, media commentators, and one politician about the 2019 Alberta election. So let's get started. I think we might have made a little bit of history tonight. In 2015, NDP leader Rachel Notley was voted in as Alberta's 17th Premier in a historic majority win. Alberta had long been governed by parties on the right side of the political spectrum, with progressive conservatives dominating the province for 44 years. For the first time in the province's history, the NDP formed government, occupying 54 of 87 seats. Notley herself became only the second woman to hold the post of Premier, after Alison Redford. Electing the NDP seemed like such a um, out-of-character, unusual thing for Albertans to do. That's David Hurley, a longtime political operative who has worked on campaigns across the country. The fact that it has been accompanied by an economic downturn, I think, creates an equation in Alberta voters' minds that's going to be almost impossible for her to overcome, which is, we did a dumb thing, we did something we've never done before, and of course it resulted in an economic downturn, as we've always been told an NDP government would result in an economic downturn. Notley was dealt a tough hand, with an economy already in decline. The price of oil crashes in 2014. I mean, I think this is the thing. In 2014, uh, I might have been in denial like a bunch of other Albertans, but it's become apparent that the price of oil is not going to boom back to where it was in 2012, 2013, 2014, before the crash. That's Dr. Melanie Thomas, a political scientist from the University of Calgary and a lifelong Albertan. 
when the economy is good and strong, usually voters will reward the incumbent party. And when the economy is anticipated um, to be, or if it's not strong, if it's weak, if it's not where people want it to be, if it's anticipated to go into a negative position, then uh, they usually punish the incumbent. And so it's not lost to me that this is the second election in a row where the economy has been a super strong narrative in Alberta. As McLean's journalist Jason Markasoff puts it, at the time she came in as premier, there was, quote, a recession, soaring unemployment, oil price slumps, and pipeline delays that thrust an already anxious populace into further hardship. Fast forward four years, and he says many of these issues persist. This has been a very personal election for a lot of people, um, in large part because uh, the economy um, looms so large in this election, and there are more than 170,000 people in this province unemployed, and a lot of them are blaming politicians, as one does um, the, the premier and uh, the NDP government, and certainly uh, federally, the federal government gets a lot of blame for that. Veteran journalist Bob Fife agrees. And she has been dealt, again, another bad set of cards because the economy has just gone through the roof in Alberta. This is all beyond her control. I mean, it's not even the pipeline so much as the fact is U.S. shell uh, um, production is up and significantly in the United States. And it's resulted in that heavy oil from Canada is is too expensive and people aren't buying it. And it's having a huge effect on the Alberta economy. That's largely the issue. You're watching a live special presentation, the 2019 Alberta Leaders Debate. Grow our economy, a good economy. Our economy. The economy. The leadership hopefuls are zeroed in on it, and it makes sense. In the Vote Compass survey of 30,000 Albertans, about what is the most important issue in Alberta, the economy was the top of the list, by a long shot. I will diversify the economy, fight for jobs and pipelines, and defend our schools and our hospitals. There are some who want to go back to old ideas that have failed and have left us in a difficult situation. I am focused on the future. Because we don't think you should have to choose between a good economy and a kind society. Welcome to what I hope will be a good discussion about how to get Alberta back to work. Are you better off than you were four years ago? For too many Albertans, the answer is no. Now, elections are never about just one thing. Not just healthcare, oil prices, or the economy, or just about the candidates. In this podcast series, we're focused on the experiences of women in senior political roles. And Alberta Premier Rachel Notley is literally the last woman standing at the First Minister's table in Canada. So we've got to ask the question, is gender a part of this election story? I don't think Premier Notley's gender has been a factor in the campaign uh, or in terms of assessments of her leadership. That's Dr. Linda Trimble, a political scientist at the University of Alberta and a renowned expert on women in Canadian politics. And I think uh, the party and uh, the, the people who put together the platform and particularly the slogan, Fighting for You, quite sensibly settled on a battle frame which positions her as strong and determined. So that kind of cuts off the possibility of um, any kind of subtle articulations of a woman premier being kind of soft and unwilling to fight the good fight for for jobs and the economy and the pipeline. Jason Markasoff shares a similar sentiment. Gender hasn't been in any way an overt uh, part of this campaign. Obviously, there's 
elements of it in subtext um, throughout the throughout Rachel Notley's term. And what has that looked like exactly? In Rachel Notley's four years in office, uh, there have been uh, threats on social media, death threats, threats of violence, the kinds of which we haven't seen in Alberta before. And we've had a female premier before, Alison Redford, uh, Notley is the second of the Alberta's elected female premiers. Um, I think that a lot of Alberta is frustrated that there's a new Democrat in in office uh, in a traditionally conservative jurisdiction. I'm not sure if uh, they'd be any less frustrated if uh, it was a male uh, NDP premier, but certainly the level of hostility is ratcheted up because it's a woman. Well, Dr. Thomas agrees that gender hasn't been explicit on the campaign trail, she said it is felt at the ground level in the way the public directs their vote. During the campaign, um, there are a couple of things that are gendered in a way that is expected, but the the size of the gendered effects are, are huge. And at the voter level, women like Rachel Notley a lot more than men do. Women are much more skeptical. They really dislike Jason Kenney much more than men do. Uh, so in terms of how voters see the campaign, there's a really strong gender dynamic. And, and so in terms of how voters are evaluating the context, that is deeply gendered. Um, there are people who are tweeting saying when they're on the doorsteps, they notice this gendered effect. So women will say that they were, they're voting NDP, but they're not sure about their husbands, which is kind of classic in Alberta. Okay, so we see gender having an impact when it comes to voter preferences. And as Jason Markasoff tells us, in the slate of candidates stepping forward. NDP leader and Premier Rachel Notley has uh, always made a big point of uh, making sure there is, is gender equity, at least in uh, in her caucus and among her candidates. She has 47 of 87 candidates elected are women uh, for the NDP. Jason Kenney, um, who uh, doesn't tend to do well among voters uh, who are female, uh, has actually made a lot of strides and been very public about his efforts to uh, recruit female candidates that he wants to have strong women around uh, his uh, his UCP caucus and cabinet table. Uh, so he's not done too bad. Uh, 27 of 87 candidates. That might actually be not bad for uh, in the history of some parties. In fact, uh, it's better than uh, the uh, third party in the province, the Alberta party, which only has 25 of 87 candidates. But let's back up for a second. If gender isn't an overt part of how leaders have been perceived through this campaign, is there a difference between the experiences of Premier Notley and her male contenders? Notley's the most threatened premier in Alberta's history. That's Dr. Linda Trimble again, and she's been studying this very question. There were the um, lock lock her up chants uh, a few years ago. There was an incident where uh, the premier's picture was placed on a target for a golf tournament. So there's this kind of simmering hostility and resentment, which shows some kind of discomfort with a woman in power, I would suggest. And it's also reflected in editorial cartoons published in newspapers, uh, particularly the Edmonton Journal, uh, during not, well, I mean, throughout her term in office, which um, one of my master's students compared editorial cartoon representations of Notley with Ed Stelmack and uh, uh, over their first year in office and found that for Notley, uh, a theme of violence was really evident. So she was depicted as enacting harm on Albertans through her policies, but most strongly as being 
harmed by opponents or by kind of visual representations of Alberta, you know, shown as uh, speared by a bull, stuck in the back with a pitchfork by a farmer, bound and gagged, and so on. So that, again, there's this kind of violent hostility simmering towards her that looks gendered to me. Dr. Trimble is not alone in this view. Here's Dr. Thomas. There have been threats of violence and things in Notley's district. So she had a door-knocking books uh, campaign uh, scheduled one day, um, one Saturday early in the campaign, and somebody was like actively stalking that and threatening violence in her own district. And so there is that. Um, but it is certainly not like part of the larger campaign discourse. I, I think it's there and I think it's present. And I think it's something that as a woman in politics, Notley has to consider in ways that Kenny does not. Um, let's not forget that the violence uh, in terms of like violent, credible threats directed against Rachel Notley while she was premier spiked around the centenary of women getting the, some women getting the provincial um, vote uh, in 2016. So there's definitely this kind of like misogynistic undercurrent, but it is not mainstream and it's certainly not part of the way that people talk about the campaign narrative. So let me break this down because it's not a perfectly clear picture. Our experts and media observers agree that gender hasn't been front and center in this campaign. But we do see gender-based differences when we look at voter preferences, slates of candidates, and the treatment of female leaders. Subtle, but there. Okay, now let's talk about the big picture. Premier Rachel Notley is the only female First Minister in Canada at the moment. And unless you know something I don't, there don't seem to be other female first ministers emerging on the near horizon. There's certainly something lost when there's no women at the decision-making table. Like what? Well, David Hurley makes this case. If you care about issues like equity, if you care about the role that government plays in providing people with basic security and basic uh, dignity, um, if you care about equality of opportunity, and if you care about the future and things like climate change, uh, you need to be electing women and you need to be w- putting women in these positions. And especially in these times, women are much more likely to think multi-generationally and think what are the implications of this two, three generations down the road where men are very focused on what the implications are here and now. Uh, I actually think it's really important to get more women uh, into leadership roles um, in government because it is important to uh, the kinds of things we need to do in government. Well, I've got some bad news for you. That's not the direction we seem to be headed. And as Dr. Thomas notes, it's not just a gender issue. It's a diversity issue as well. I think Canadians should be worried that our highest, most powerful political positions appear to be closed to, or pretty systematically closed to groups who aren't straight white men. It's striking to me that we still see electorally competitive parties choose men, and especially choose white men as their leaders. So I'm looking at Rachel Notley. Uh, I'm looking at Christy Clark. I'm looking at Kathleen Wynne, uh, Pauline Marois, all of these women where they were in, um, uh, even Alison Redford. So looking, they were not in really strong competitive territory when they took their parties into elections, uh, and none of them were actually given um, a serious opportunity to contest uh, or to credibly w- win re-election again. I mean, the other places where this can be paused is looking at Ontario. There were really competent women who could have led the Ontario Progressive Conservatives, and the party took a pass on them. The Conservative Party of Canada, really competent women. The party didn't even put them into the top three 
um, for potential like leadership candidates, right, on that first ballot. So this this says a lot. No one knows this better than Alberta politician Sandra Jansen. You've probably heard of her. She's the only person who knows what the inside of both frontrunner parties in this election look like, because she's not only served as a member, but in the cabinet of both parties. My interview with Sandra was powerful and sometimes hard to listen to. I'll warn you ahead of time that this isn't going to be easy to hear. There is some sexually violent and graphic language. But sadly, this is part of the experience of women in Canadian politics when they step forward to run for our most senior roles. Sandra Jansen experienced sexism right out of the gate from the very first time she ran for political office. Well, I was a a single mom, and I certainly did hear at the doors from people in my constituency that, uh, you know, they wondered how I would be able to do the job since I was unable to hold a marriage together. Sadly, this was just the beginning. You know, I had uh, great colleagues who really enjoyed working with my colleagues in the Progressive Conservative Caucus. But yes, they're, you know, it was, it's, it was still, all told, a very patriarchal uh, uh, operation. When I entered the leadership race, I believed that I represented a good portion of the people in the province who were uh, socially progressive and fiscally more on the conservative side. And uh, I was just a, a, a little too far over for, for folks on the right to embrace me. Uh, certainly, um, you know, social conservatives did not like the fact that I had been the first minister responsible for LGBTQ issues, women's issues. You know, I was a very... Um, a prominent voice on those issues. And uh, so there were a lot of folks in the party, even before I had entered the race, who really felt that I did not represent the conservative brand in Alberta. She's talking about the 2017 progressive conservative leadership race in Alberta. She and one other woman stepped forward as candidates. The frontrunner was Jason Kenney. When I got to events, um, there were uh, contingents of pro-lifers and anti-abortion folks uh, who would target me at these events. And when uh, finally the last straw in the leadership was when uh, I went to the policy conference at Red Deer, and there was a level of toxicity in the room when I stood up there that was, you know, hard for me to, to reconcile uh, because I, I didn't think I was saying anything shocking. I certainly wasn't talking about social policy. I was talking about energy policy, uh, natural gas, cogen, things like that. Uh, but it was what I represented to those people um, and that they found offensive. So when I got to Red Deer, uh, I'd only been at the policy conference for a couple of hours when someone approached me and told me that on the posters that had been put up, um, someone had scrawled cunt across my face and people were posing in front of it and taking pictures. And then the um, anti-abortion folks were chasing me up and down the hallways, calling me a baby killer and asking, you know, asking why I thought it was okay to kill babies. And, um, you know, uh, for all of us, we had an opportunity to hand our nomination papers in to get the last of our signatures my nomination papers, as we put them on the table, as every other candidate did to get their final signatures, my nomination papers were defaced. I asked Sandra, surely when something like that happens, the other candidates, in a loud and united voice, 
call out this kind of behavior, right? What was the reaction from your colleagues in the race? Uh, that I was oversensitive, that I was making it up. Um, that, uh, uh, that my team was harassing their team. And so uh, it really was both sides needed to behave better. There was at least one, uh, um, there was one editorial in a national newspaper uh, that was incredibly harsh, uh, talking about me and how I needed to toughen up if I wanted to be in politics. She decided to step out of the race. Incidentally, the other woman stepped out the same day. In that moment, you know, I felt, what do I even do now? I mean, I believe my political career is over. So she left her caucus, and eventually she took a big step and crossed the floor. So when I crossed, we knew that there would be an uproar. Uh, I'm not sure that anybody was prepared for uh, quite as bad as it was in that first week. There were death threats. There were rape threats. There was very um, uh, violent uh, depictions of of me online. Uh, there were pictures of uh, people immolating with my face photoshopped on top. I had people threatening to bore me a new asshole, uh, that I should have been aborted, that um, that I should have a bullet through my head, um, you know, that I should leave my house wearing a bulletproof pantsuit, fly with the crows and get shot. Um, it went on and on. And at that moment, I didn't know whether someone would be mad enough to want to track me down and hurt me. I didn't know that. And for the first time in my life, I wondered whether I could get hurt as a result of my political belief. She shared a specific story that I found particularly tough to hear. I mean, there was one particular night I came home and the sheriff dropped me in front of the house and waited in the driveway so I could go in and give the all clear sign. And I walked into my house and I always do a check on you know, to make sure that all the doors are locked. And I went down to the basement and I checked the sliding door and the sliding door was open. And I stood there in the basement in the dark and I broke out in a sweat because I thought someone might be in my house. And in that moment, I thought, first of all, what am I doing? And what am I doing to my daughter, who was only 16 at the time, and who did her Christmas shopping with an armed escort? What, what am I doing to my family? And, you know, is this worth it? It's a very big question, and one that a lot of women ask when they think about getting into politics, way before they get to the point of standing in a dark basement, afraid for their life. I look at Rachel Notley and she's 600 times more threatened than I have ever been in my life. Think about that. And uh, she goes out there every day and she talks about important policy and she stands her ground. It's not a question to me at all of whether it's worth it. It's a question of uh, how long do we have to go with this kind of behavior before we get to a place where our next generation of female leaders doesn't have to put up with this. And uh, that's the work we do. And so we shoulder that load so the next generation hopefully doesn't have to. This isn't about any particular political party. It's not even about specific leaders. It's about whether or not women can succeed in our political system and how they are treated when they reach for the top. Only 12 women 
have ever reached our peak political post. And when women do reach these roles, it's hard. They tend to only succeed in tough political times. As Christy Clark and others have said, when no one else wants the job. People need to think, to believe that women can lead, they have to see women leaders. They have to be high profile, highly visible, and uh, in in high prestige roles. And so in Canada, if Notley loses, we won't have that. Um, And that's a problem because that has to be constantly reinforced, the idea that women can lead and women can lead effectively. And the other impact of symbolic politics is as people need to see folks like themselves in elected office in order to uh, to believe that that they are rep- or to see that they are represented, but also to believe that they they might be able to win political office. So it it could be that that uh, the lack of women in uh, government leadership roles may discourage women's candidacy. I look at these positions of leadership, like leading an electorally competitive party, um, becoming premier, becoming prime minister, and it still looks like these offices are exclusively held by white men. I think we should seriously think about why that's the case. When you don't have women or people of color or Indigenous people in these high-profile positions of leadership, you don't have these young people seeing somebody who looks like them exercising political power. That sends the message, whether we like it or not, that power is not for them. So here's the bottom line. The hallmark of democracy is that power is shared. But we live in a country where we see significant groups of people largely excluded from our highest seats of power. This includes women, people of color, indigenous peoples, and more. Who wins and who loses? Who runs and who doesn't? Who gets to make decisions and who never gets a seat at the table. Well, those things reflect something powerful about us as Canadians, and they should be cause for serious reflection about the state of our democracy. And that, my friends, is what this project is all about. We need to think long and hard about this and start talking about the kind of concrete changes we want to see, changes we will make, because this is a democracy and power rests with us. Thanks for tuning in to our special episode about the 2019 Alberta election. Next week, we'll return to our ongoing series, sharing the stories of Canada's female leaders. You've heard them talk about their childhoods. You've heard them share why they ran for office. You've heard them talk about life and politics. And here's a spoiler alert for you. Things are about to heat up. These women are among the rare few who've taken a very big leap to run for leadership. They cast their eye towards Canada's peak political post, and they go for it. We'll hear what that adventure is all about in our next episode, Stepping Into the Ring, dropping on Monday, April 22nd. You won't want to miss it. As always, you can subscribe and learn more about this project at nosecondchances.ca. Coming up on No Second Chances. The one of the um, really common archetypes for women is the witch. She's evil she's corrupted and certainly it was a very easy um, label to put on Hillary Clinton crooked Hillary well it works for women crooked it, it works because it plays into that archetype there had been people who'd come to me and said you shouldn't run because you can't win you can't be the premier because you're a lesbian you won't get elected quite apart from what they may have felt about me personally they felt that I couldn't win and I 
I said to them, you know, that's how homophobia works. It works by keeping people out of positions, not by including everyone in the, in the race. And, and I couldn't be so different from my predecessors that I was unrecognizable or I wouldn't be supported as prime minister. So part of it is you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You don't look or sound like any of the other ones. But if you get too different, you're not credible in the role because they have defined the role. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020, written and hosted by me, Kate Graham. It's produced by Sarah Turnbull and I, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reynolds. Our music is composed and performed by Meredith Yeyanos. Mira Ahmad is the Communications and Operations Manager at Canada 2020, which is led by Executive Director Alex Patterson. This episode includes materials republished with the express permission of the Edmonton Journal, a division of Post Media Network Incorporated. This project would not be possible without the generous support of MasterCard. Hey there, it's Sarah from the 2020 Network, brought to you by Interact. If you like what you heard today and want to find out more about what Canada 2020 is up to, add yourself to our mailing list. That's where we share the details of our upcoming events and initiatives. And if you haven't yet already, subscribe to the 2020 Network. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We've got four awesome shows suited to everyone's unique tastes. On quality content, host Alex Patterson chats with people shaping Canadian culture. Writers, politicians, comedians, musicians, and more. 2020 Live is your opportunity to sit in remotely to Canada 2020 events. We bring you the highlights from everything that goes down in our studio space. On Explain Like I'm Vibe, we invite guests in to break down really complex yet topical issues to host Aaron Reynolds. There's no fluff, no buzz terms, just the basics. And finally, Endthread, our Friday morning current affairs panel. Shannon Proudfoot of McLean's, David Reevely of the Canadian Press, and myself will be there each week to break down the headlines that have shaped the Canadian Poli conversation. So go now and subscribe.